File 35 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book 3 of Morals. Part 1 of Virtue and Vice in General. Section 1. Moral Distinctions Not Derived from Reason there is an inconvenience which attends all abstruse reasoning that it may silence without convincing an antagonist and requires the same intense study to make us sensible of its force that was at first requisite for its invention when we leave our closet and engage in the common affairs of life its conclusions seem to vanish like the phantoms of the night on the appearance of the morning and it is difficult for us to retain even that conviction which we had attained with difficulty this is still more conspicuous in a long chain of reasoning where we must preserve to the end the evidence of the first propositions and where we often lose sight of all the most received maxims either of philosophy or common life i am not however without hopes that the present system of philosophy will acquire new force as it advances and that our reasonings concerning morals will corroborate whatever has been said concerning the understanding and the passions morality is a subject that interests us above all others we fancy the peace of society to be at stake in every decision concerning it and it is evident that this concern must make our speculations appear more real and solid than where the subject is in a great measure indifferent to us what affects us we conclude can never be a chimera and as our passion is engaged on the one side or the other we naturally think that the question lies within human comprehension which in other cases of this nature we are apt to entertain some doubt of without this advantage i never should have ventured upon a third volume of such abstruse philosophy in an age wherein the greatest part of men seem agreed to convert reading into an amusement and to reject everything that requires any considerable degree of attention to be comprehended it has been observed that nothing is ever present to the mind but its perceptions and that all the actions of seeing hearing judging loving hating and thinking fall under this denomination the mind can never exert itself in any action which we may not comprehend under the term of perception and consequently that term is no less applicable to those judgments by which we distinguish moral good and evil than to every other operation of the mind to approve of one character to condemn another are only so many different perceptions now as perceptions resolve themselves into two kinds that is impressions and ideas this distinction gives rise to a question with which we shall open up our present inquiry concerning morals
whether it is by means of our ideas or impressions we distinguish betwixt vice and virtue and pronounce an action blamable or praiseworthy this will immediately cut off all loose discourses and declamations and reduce us to something precise and exact on the present subject those who affirm that virtue is nothing but a conformity to reason that there are eternal fitnesses and unfitnesses of things which are the same to every rational being that considers them that the immutable measures of right and wrong impose an obligation not only on human creatures but also on the deity himself all these systems concur in the opinion that morality like truth is discerned merely by ideas and by their juxtaposition and comparison in order therefore to judge of these systems we need only consider whether it be possible from reason alone to distinguish betwixt moral good and evil or whether there must concur some other principles to enable us to make that distinction if morality had naturally no influence on human passions and actions it were in vain to take such pains to inculcate it and nothing would be more fruitless than that multitude of rules and precepts with which all moralists abound philosophy is commonly divided into speculative and practical and as morality is always comprehended under the latter division it is supposed to influence our passions and actions and to go beyond the calm and indolent judgments of the understanding and this is confirmed by common experience which informs us that men are often governed by their duties and are deterred from some actions by the opinion of injustice and impelled to others by that of obligation since morals therefore have an influence on the actions and affections it follows that they cannot be derived from reason and that because reason alone as we have already proved can never have any such influence morals excite passions and produce or prevent actions reason of itself is utterly impotent in this particular the rules of morality therefore are not conclusions of our reason no one i believe will deny the justness of this inference nor is there any other means of evading it than by denying that principle on which it is founded as long as it is allowed that reason has no influence on our passions and actions it is in vain to pretend that morality is discovered only by a deduction of reason an active principle can never be founded on an inactive and if reason be inactive in itself it must remain so in all its shapes and appearances whether it exerts itself in natural or moral subjects whether it considers the powers of external bodies or the actions of rational beings it would be tedious to repeat all the arguments 
by which I have proved, in Book 2, Part 3, Section 3, that reason is perfectly inert, and can never either prevent or produce any action or affection. It will be easy to recollect what has been said upon that subject. I shall only recall on this occasion one of these arguments which I shall endeavour to render still more conclusive and more applicable to the present subject. Reason is the discovery of truth or falsehood. Truth or falsehood consists in an agreement or disagreement either to the real relations of ideas or to real existence and matter of fact. Whatever, therefore, is not susceptible of this agreement or disagreement is incapable of being true or false, and can never be an object of our reason. Now it is evident our passions, volitions, and actions are not susceptible of any such agreement or disagreement, being original facts and realities complete in themselves, and implying no reference to other passions, volitions, and actions. It is impossible, therefore, they can be pronounced either true or false, and be either contrary or conformable to reason. This argument is of double advantage to our present purpose, for it proves directly that actions do not derive their merit from a conformity to reason, nor their blame from a contrariety to it and it proves the same truth more indirectly by shewing us that as reason can never immediately prevent or produce any action by contradicting or approving of it it cannot be the source of moral good and evil which are found to have that influence actions may be laudable or blamable but they cannot be reasonable or unreasonable laudable or blamable therefore are not the same with reasonable or unreasonable the merit and demerit of actions frequently contradict and sometimes control our natural propensities but reason has no such influence moral distinctions therefore are not the offspring of reason reason is wholly inactive and can never be the source of so active a principle as conscience or a sense of morals. But perhaps it may be said, that though no will or action can be immediately contradictory to reason, yet we may find such a contradiction in some of the attendants of the action, that is, in its causes or effects. The action may cause a judgment, or may be obliquely caused by one when the judgment concurs with a passion and by an abusive way of speaking which philosophy will scarce allow of the same contrariety may upon that account be ascribed to the action how far this truth or falsehood may be the source of morals it will now be proper to consider it has been observed that reason in a strict and philosophical sense can have an influence on our conduct only after two ways 
either when it excites a passion by informing us of the existence of something which is a proper object of it or when it discovers the connection of causes and effects so as to afford us means of exerting any passion these are the only kinds of judgment which can accompany our actions or can be said to produce them in any manner and it must be allowed that these judgments may often be false and erroneous a person may be affected with passion by supposing a pain or pleasure to lie in an object which has no tendency to produce either of these sensations or which produces the contrary to what is imagined a person may also take false measures for the attaining his end and may retard by his foolish conduct instead of forwarding the execution of any project these false judgments may be thought to affect the passions and actions which are connected with them and may be said to render them unreasonable in a figurative and improper way of speaking but though this be acknowledged it is easy to observe that these errors are so far from being the source of all immorality that they are commonly very innocent and draw no manner of guilt upon the person who is so unfortunate as to fall into them they extend not beyond a mistake of fact which moralists have not generally supposed criminal as being perfectly involuntary i am more to be lamented than blamed if i am mistaken with regard to the influence of objects in producing pain or pleasure or if i know not the proper means of satisfying my desires no one can ever regard such errors as a defect in my moral character a fruit for instance that is really disagreeable appears to me at a distance and through mistake i fancy it to be pleasant and delicious here is one error i choose certain means of reaching this fruit which are not proper for my end here is a second error nor is there any third one which can ever possibly enter into our reasonings concerning actions i ask therefore if a man in this situation and guilty of these two errors is to be regarded as vicious and criminal however unavoidable they might have been or if it be possible to imagine that such errors are the sources of all immorality and here it may be proper to observe that if moral distinctions be derived from the truth or falsehood of those judgments they must take place wherever we form the judgments nor will there be any difference whether the question be concerning an apple or a kingdom or whether the error be avoidable or unavoidable for as the very essence of morality is supposed to consist in an agreement or disagreement to reason the other circumstances are entirely arbitrary and can never either bestow on any action the character of virtuous or vicious or deprive it of that character to which we may add that this agreement or disagreement not admitting of degrees all virtues and vices would of course be equal 
should it be pretended that though a mistake of fact be not criminal yet a mistake of right often is and that this may be the source of immorality i would answer that it is impossible such a mistake can ever be the original source of immorality since it supposes a real right and wrong that is a real distinction in morals independent of these judgments a mistake therefore of right may become a species of immorality but it is only a secondary one and is founded on some other antecedent to it as to those judgments which are the effects of our actions and which when false give occasion to pronounce the actions contrary to truth and reason we may observe that our actions never cause any judgment either true or false in ourselves and that it is only on others they have such an influence it is certain that an action on many occasions may give rise to false conclusions in others and that a person who through a window sees any lewd behaviour of mine with my neighbour's wife may be so simple as to imagine she is certainly my own in this respect my action resembles somewhat a lie or falsehood only with this difference which is material that i perform not the action with any intention of giving rise to a false judgment in another but merely to satisfy my lust and passion it causes however a mistake and false judgment by accident and the falsehood of its effects may be ascribed by some odd figurative way of speaking to the action itself but still i can see no pretext of reason for asserting that the tendency to cause such an error is the first spring or original source of all immorality footnote twelve one might think it were entirely superfluous to prove this if a late author william wollaston the religion of nature delineated london seventeen twenty two who has had the good fortune to obtain some reputation had not seriously affirmed that such a falsehood is the foundation of all guilt and moral deformity that we may discover the fallacy of his hypothesis we need only consider that a false conclusion is drawn from an action only by means of an obscurity of natural principles which makes a cause be secretly interrupted in its operation by contrary causes and renders the connection betwixt two objects uncertain and variable now as a like uncertainty and variety of causes take place even in natural objects and produce a like error in our judgment if that tendency to produce error were the very essence of vice and immorality it should follow that even inanimate objects might be vicious and immoral it is in vain to urge that inanimate objects act without liberty and choice for as liberty and choice are not necessary to make an action produce in us an erroneous conclusion they can be in no respect essential to morality and i do not readily perceive upon this system how they can ever come to be regarded by it 
if the tendency to cause error be the origin of immorality, that tendency and immorality would in every case be inseparable. Add to this, that if I had used the precaution of shutting the windows while I indulged myself in those liberties with my neighbor's wife, I should have been guilty of no immorality, and that, because my action, being perfectly concealed, would have had no tendency to produce any false conclusion. For the same reason, a thief who steals in by a ladder at a window, and takes all imaginable care to cause no disturbance, is in no respect criminal. For either he will not be perceived, or if he be, it is impossible he can produce any error, nor will any one from these circumstances take him to be other than what he really is. It is well known that those who are squint-sighted do very readily cause mistakes in others, and that we imagine they salute or are talking to one person while they address themselves to another. Are they, therefore, upon that account, immoral? Besides, we may easily observe that in all those arguments there is an evident reasoning in a circle. A person who takes possession of another's goods, and uses them as his own, in a manner declares them to be his own, and this falsehood is the source of the immorality of injustice. But is property, or right, or obligation, intelligible without an antecedent morality? A man that is ungrateful to his benefactor in a manner affirms that he never received any favours from him. But in what manner? Is it because it is his duty to be grateful? But this supposes that there is some antecedent rule of duty and morals. Is it because human nature is generally grateful, and makes us conclude that a man who does any harm never received any favour from the person he harmed? But human nature is not so generally grateful as to justify such a conclusion. Or if it were, is an exception to a general rule in every case criminal for no other reason than because it is an exception? But what may suffice entirely to destroy this whimsical system is that it leaves us under the same difficulty to give a reason why truth is virtuous and falsehood vicious as to account for the merit or turpitude of any other action. I shall allow, if you please, that all immorality is derived from this supposed falsehood in action, provided you can give me any plausible reason why such a falsehood is immoral. If you consider rightly of the matter, you will find yourself in the same difficulty as at the beginning. This last argument is very conclusive, because if there be not an evident merit or turpitude annexed to this species of truth or falsehood, it can never have any influence upon our actions for who ever thought of forbearing any action because others might possibly draw false conclusions from it, or who ever performed any that he might give rise to true conclusions? End of footnote 12. Thus, upon the whole, 
it is impossible that the distinction betwixt moral good and evil can be made by reason since that distinction has an influence upon our actions of which reason alone is incapable reason and judgment may indeed be the mediate cause of an action by prompting or by directing a passion but it is not pretended that a judgment of this kind either in its truth or falsehood is attended with virtue or vice and as to the judgments which are caused by our judgments they can still less bestow those moral qualities on the actions which are their causes but to be more particular and to shew that those eternal immutable fitnesses and unfitnesses of things cannot be defended by sound philosophy we may weigh the following considerations if the thought and understanding were alone capable of fixing the boundaries of right and wrong the character of virtuous and vicious either must lie in some relations of objects or must be a matter of fact which is discovered by our reasoning this consequence is evident as the operations of human understanding divide themselves into two kinds the comparing of ideas and the inferring of matter of fact were virtue discovered by the understanding it must be an object of one of these operations nor is there any third operation of the understanding which can discover it there has been an opinion very industriously propagated by certain philosophers that morality is susceptible of demonstration and though no one has ever been able to advance a single step in those demonstrations yet it is taken for granted that this science may be brought to an equal certainty with geometry or algebra upon this supposition vice and virtue must consist in some relations since it is allowed on all hands that no matter of fact is capable of being demonstrated let us therefore begin with examining this hypothesis and endeavour if possible to fix those moral qualities which have been so long the objects of our fruitless researches point out distinctly the relations which constitute morality or obligation that we may know wherein they consist and after what manner we must judge of them if you assert that vice and virtue consist in relations susceptible of certainty and demonstration you must confine yourself to those four relations which alone admit of that degree of evidence and in that case you run into absurdities from which you will never be able to extricate yourself for as you make the very essence of morality to lie in the relations and as there is no one of these relations but what is applicable not only to an irrational but also to an inanimate object it follows that even such objects must be susceptible of merit or demerit resemblance contrariety degrees in quality and proportions in quantity and number all these relations belong as properly to matter as to our actions passions and volitions it is unquestionable therefore 
that morality lies not in any of these relations, nor the sense of it in their discovery. Footnote 13. As a proof how confused our way of thinking on this subject commonly is, we may observe that those who assert that morality is demonstrable do not say that morality lies in the relations, and that the relations are distinguishable by reason. They only say that reason can discover such an action in such relations to be virtuous, and such another vicious. It seems they thought it sufficient if they could bring the word relation into the proposition without troubling themselves whether it was to the purpose or not. But here, I think, is plain argument. Demonstrative reason discovers only relations. But that reason, according to this hypothesis, discovers also vice and virtue. These moral qualities, therefore, must be relations. When we blame any action in any situation, the whole complicated object of action and situation must form certain relations, wherein the essence of vice consists. This hypothesis is not otherwise intelligible. For what does reason discover when it pronounces any action vicious? Does it discover a relation or a matter of fact? These questions are decisive, and must not be eluded. End of footnote 13 should it be asserted that the sense of morality consists in the discovery of some relation distinct from these and that our enumeration was not complete when we comprehended all demonstrable relations under four general heads to this i know not what to reply till some one be so good as to point out to me this new relation it is impossible to refute a system which has never yet been explained. In such a manner of fighting in the dark, a man loses his blows in the air, and often places them where the enemy is not present. I must therefore on this occasion rest contented with requiring the two following conditions of any one that would undertake to clear up this system. First, as moral good and evil belong only to the actions of the mind, and are derived from our situation with regard to external objects, the relations from which these moral distinctions arise must lie only betwixt internal actions and external objects, and must not be applicable either to internal actions compared among themselves, or to external objects when placed in opposition to other external objects. For as morality is supposed to attend certain relations, if these relations could belong to internal actions considered singly, it would follow that we might be guilty of crimes in ourselves, and independent of our situation with respect to the universe, and in like manner if these moral relations could be applied to external objects, it would follow that even inanimate beings would be susceptible of moral beauty and deformity. Now it seems difficult to imagine that any relation can be discovered betwixt our passions, volitions, and actions, compared to external objects, 
which relation might not belong either to these passions and volitions, or to these external objects compared among themselves. But it will be still more difficult to fulfill the second condition requisite to justify this system. According to the principles of those who maintain an abstract rational difference betwixt moral good and evil, and a natural fitness and unfitness of things, it is not only supposed that these relations, being eternal and immutable, are the same when considered by every rational creature, but their effects are also supposed to be necessarily the same, and it is concluded they have no less or rather a greater influence in directing the will of the deity than in governing the rational and virtuous of our own species these two particulars are evidently distinct it is one thing to know virtue and another to conform the will to it in order therefore to prove that the measures of right and wrong are eternal laws obligatory on every rational mind it is not sufficient to shew the relations upon which they are founded we must also point out the connection betwixt the relation and the will and must prove that this connection is so necessary that in every well-disposed mind it must take place and have its influence though the difference betwixt these minds be in other respects immense and infinite now besides what i have already proved that even in human nature no relation can ever alone produce any action besides this i say it has been shewn in treating of the understanding that there is no connection of cause and effect such as this is supposed to be which is discoverable otherwise than by experience and of which we can pretend to have any security by the simple consideration of the objects all beings in the universe considered in themselves appear entirely loose and independent of each other it is only by experience we learn their influence and connection and this influence we ought never to extend beyond experience thus it will be impossible to fulfil the first condition required to the system of eternal rational measures of right and wrong because it is impossible to shew those relations upon which such a distinction may be founded and it is as impossible to fulfil the second condition because we cannot prove a priori that these relations if they really existed and were perceived would be universally forcible and obligatory but to make these general reflections more clear and convincing we may illustrate them by some particular instances wherein this character of moral good or evil is the most universally acknowledged of all crimes that human creatures are capable of committing the most horrid and unnatural is ingratitude especially when it is committed against parents and appears in the more flagrant instances of wounds and death this is acknowledged by all mankind philosophers as well as the people the question only arises among philosophers whether the guilt or moral deformity of this action be discovered by demonstrative reasoning or be felt by an internal sense and by means of some sentiment 
which the reflecting on such an action naturally occasions. This question will soon be decided against the former opinion, if we can shew the same relations in other objects, without the notion of any guilt or iniquity attending them. Reason or science is nothing but the comparing of ideas, and the discovery of their relations. And if the same relations have different characters, it must evidently follow that those characters are not discovered merely by reason. To put the affair, therefore, to this trial, let us choose any inanimate object, such as an oak or elm, and let us suppose that by the dropping of its seed it produces a sapling below it, which, springing up by degrees, at last overtops and destroys the parent tree. I ask if in this instance there be wanting any relation which is discoverable in parricide or in gratitude. Is not the one tree the cause of the other's existence, and the latter the cause of the destruction of the former, in the same manner as when a child murders his parent? It is not sufficient to reply that a choice or will is wanting. For in the case of parricide, a will does not give rise to any different relations, but is only the cause from which the action is derived, and consequently produces the same relations that in the oak or elm arise from some other principles. It is a will or choice that determines a man to kill his parent, and they are the laws of matter and motion that determine a sapling to destroy the oak from which it sprung. Here, then, the same relations have different causes, but still the relations are the same, and as their discovery is not in both cases attended with a notion of immorality, it follows that that notion does not arise from such a discovery. But to choose an instance still more resembling, I would fain ask any one why incest in the human species is criminal, and why the very same action and the same relations in animals have not the smallest moral turpitude and deformity. If it be answered that this action is innocent in animals, because they have not reason sufficient to discover its turpitude, but that man, being endowed with that faculty which ought to restrain him to his duty, the same action instantly becomes criminal to him. Should this be said, I would reply that this is evidently arguing in a circle, for before reason can perceive this turpitude, the turpitude must exist, and consequently is independent of the decisions of our reason, and is their object more properly than their effect. According to this system, then, every animal that has sense and appetite and will, that is, every animal, must be susceptible of all the same virtues and vices for which we ascribe praise and blame to human creatures. All the difference is that our superior reason may serve to discover the vice or virtue, and by that means may augment the blame or praise. But still, this discovery supposes a separate being in these moral distinctions, and a being which depends only on the will and appetite, 
and which both in thought and reality may be distinguished from the reason animals are susceptible of the same relations with respect to each other as the human species and therefore would also be susceptible of the same morality if the essence of morality consisted in these relations their want of a sufficient degree of reason may hinder them from perceiving the duties and obligations of morality but can never hinder these duties from existing since they must antecedently exist in order to their being perceived reason must find them and can never produce them this argument deserves to be weighed as being in my opinion entirely decisive nor does this reasoning only prove that morality consists not in any relations that are the objects of science but if examined will prove with equal certainty that it consists not in any matter of fact which can be discovered by the understanding this is the second part of our argument and if it can be made evident we may conclude that morality is not an object of reason but can there be any difficulty in proving that vice and virtue are not matters of fact whose existence we can infer by reason take any action allowed to be vicious wilful murder for instance examine it in all lights and see if you can find that matter of fact or real existence which you call vice in whichever way you take it you find only certain passions motives volitions and thoughts there is no other matter of fact in the case the vice entirely escapes you as long as you consider the object you never can find it till you turn your reflection into your own breast and find a sentiment of disapprobation which arises in you towards this action here is a matter of fact but it is the object of feeling not of reason it lies in yourself not in the object so that when you pronounce any action or character to be vicious you mean nothing but that from the constitution of your nature you have a feeling or sentiment of blame from the contemplation of it vice and virtue therefore may be compared to sounds colors heat and cold which according to modern philosophy are not qualities in objects but perceptions in the mind and this discovery in morals like that other in physics is to be regarded as a considerable advancement of the speculative sciences though like that too it has little or no influence on practice nothing can be more real or concern us more than our own sentiments of pleasure and uneasiness and if these be favourable to virtue and unfavourable to vice no more can be requisite to the regulation of our conduct and behaviour i cannot forbear adding to these reasonings an observation which may perhaps be found of some importance in every system of morality which i have hitherto met with i have always remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning and establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs 
when of a sudden I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions, is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought, or an ought not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. For as this ought, or ought not, expresses some new relation or affirmation, it is necessary that it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that a reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, how this new relation can be a deduction from others which are entirely different from it. But as authors do not commonly use this precaution, I shall presume to recommend it to the readers, and am persuaded that this small attention would subvert all the vulgar systems of morality, and let us see that the distinction of vice and virtue is not founded merely on the relations of objects, nor is perceived by reason. End of file 35